That evening at Esther's banquet, as the king and Haman were drinking wine, Xerxes turned to Esther and again asked her what she wanted. The king was so infatuated with her that he was prepared to give her anything she requested. With the future of her people at stake, Esther had to act. It was now or never. Esther began by asking the king if it pleased him to spare her life. This must have confused Xerxes, but Esther wasn't finished. She continued explaining that she and her people had been sold, not as slaves. That wouldn't be worth troubling the king over, no. They were sold to be murdered. Xerxes exploded with anger. Who is he? And where is he? Who would dare to do this? A foe, Esther replied. And an enemy is this wicked Haman. The king was filled with rage. He stormed out of Esther's room and into the palace garden. Haman knew that this could be the end for him. The king had already decided what his fate would be. Haman was now forced to beg Queen Esther, a Jew, for his life. When the king returned to the room, he found Haman clinging to Esther. The king snapped. Will he even assault the queen with me in the house? Before the words had even finished leaving his mouth, the guards had seized Haman and covered his face. One of them told the king about the gallows Haman had constructed, the one he intended for Mordecai. Hang him on it, the king said. Okay, now this brings us to chapter 8 and the tables have completely turned. Esther explained everything about her lineage to Xerxes. And as for Mordecai, not only did he end up getting Haman's old job, he was also given his entire estate. Not bad. With Haman out of the way, Esther turned her attention to the law the king had put in place. She fell at Xerxes' feet and begged him not to go through with the plan to kill the Jews. Because of Persian law, though, a king's orders couldn't just be reversed. There was nothing that he could do to stop them from being carried out. Xerxes had an idea. He gave Esther his signet ring and instructed her and Mordecai to write letters to the Jews of the kingdom. In the letters, they were to inform them that Xerxes granted his permission to defend themselves against any army that rises against them. He also gave permission to plunder the belongings of those they defeated. The messengers hurried out with the news. As the word spread, the Jewish people rejoiced in celebration. There was now a glimmer of hope. Amen. Well, at this point, as most of us know, we want to welcome our Cactus Campus over in Phoenix. We want to welcome our Northridge Campus in North Scottsdale, our chapel right next door, and then our venue across the way, as well as those of you watching online. And before I pray for our time in the Word, I want to make a, a rather significant uh, announcement, a, a good significant announcement. Uh, some of you panic immediately when I say that. Uh, I've been gone for the last couple of weeks. I, I was uh, spending about a week with our, our pastors here at the church. We took about two-thirds of them, uh, which 
which is about 30 of them, up to Prescott a couple of weeks ago and spent an entire week with Dr. Larry Crabb learning how to do spiritual direction, how to have a, a more focused spiritual conversation with all of you in our ministries and be able to help guide you spiritually in the power of the Holy Spirit and through the Word of God. So that was an incredible week. And then this past week, I was uh, in Chicago representing our church on the board of the European Leadership Forum. As you know, we're significantly involved in helping Europe uh, strengthen the church because they're hurting so badly uh, in Western and Eastern Europe when it comes to the strength of the church. And, and now I'm back. And, and while I was gone, as many of you know, we had Kevin Ewell two weeks ago and then Rustin Rossello last week uh, preach and join me in this book in the series of Esther. And I dialed in each week that they were preaching. I dialed in all through the summer when for six weeks they preached. And what you guys need to know is that this year as we have put Pastor Kevin and Pastor Rustin uh, in that teaching role more and more, it's been by design. Uh, the elders and myself have felt led for the last few years to try to strengthen our pastor, our pastors in the church here within Scottsdale Bible Church, especially our younger pastors, because I ain't getting any younger, and we're trying to set the table for the next season of ministry uh, here at our church. And so here's what I'm leading up to. We have been so encouraged and so uh, affirming of the anointing upon Rustin and Kevin when they teach the word of God that three weeks ago, the elders unanimously, every one of them, uh, chose to add the title teaching pastor to their titles here at Scottsdale Bible Church. Yep. So if you see Kevin up at Northridge or Rustin over at the venue, please encourage them in this. This is a significant step for our church. Um, I think it goes out, goes out saying, I'm not going anywhere, for those of you who are wondering that. Some of you are bummed by that, but I'm not going anywhere. Uh, I, I preach about two-thirds of the time, which is about my pace as I'm getting up in years, and two-thirds is a good pace for me, but that leaves one-third left, and we're going to be investing more and more through our in-house preachers, as well as bringing some in from the outside. We're not done doing that uh, by any stretch, but we are grateful that God has lifted up Kevin and Rustin. And again, I, I dialed in. They are just anointed, and they did a phenomenal job in handling the Word of God as we make our way through Esther. So, uh, as was mentioned earlier, if you are brand new, if this is your first day visiting Scottsdale Bible Church, you might be scratching your head at that video that we just showed you, like, what's the story about? We're going to catch you up real quickly and right now. But before we do, let me bow, all of us, and let's pray and ask God's anointing on his word. Father, um, I'm fully convinced, and most of these dear people are as well, that if we are to open this book before us, the Bible, 66 books contained in history that you have provided for us, that you have inspired uh, to be your word to us, that if we open this book and, and do so in our own strength, not in the power of the Spirit, everything will fall flat. And so, Lord, my simple prayer is that as we open to this story of Esther today and continue to make our way through it, that what I say would be empowered, anointed, 
uh, driven by your Holy Spirit. And that any words that I share that are not of your spirit would fall on deaf ears. Only the things, God, that are of you and by you uh, would get through. God, we love you. Uh, There are many of us that hit spiritually dry times in our lives and we don't know what to do. So help us with that as we plumb the depths of this great book that you've recorded for us, the book of Esther. And we pray these things in Jesus' name and we all say together, amen. So let's start really simple. Let's go back to the beginning of where we started in this series. And let me remind you that the whole point of this series that we've been in this fall here at SBC is this. And that is that there are times in life, even more than many of us would care to count, where God feels far away. Can you own that? I don't care how long you've been a Christian, how long you've walked with God, we all go through seasons like this where there are times where God seems far away. We're calling it divine distance. The reality that God does not seem or feel as close as he once did despite the fact that we're doing all that we know to do to stay close to him. We're having daily devotions, we're praying, we're going to church, we're serving. We're doing all the things that we've been taught to do, but for reasons unknown, there are times that we feel distant from the Lord. And along comes the book of Esther, a book written toward the tail end of the Old Testament, and it helps us navigate divine distance, times when God seems more behind the scenes. You see, that's the entire context of the book of Esther. I've told you this already before, but it's the only book in the Bible that doesn't mention God. It's in the Bible, and it doesn't mention God. It doesn't mention his law. It doesn't mention concepts like like mercy or grace. They're all absent in the book of Esther. And for thousands of years, theologians have wondered why. Why would God include this in the Bible? And the answer is simple. That the Jews are at a point in their life, and we'll see what this means more in a minute, where they are in exile and they feel distant from God. So the person writing this book isn't writing this glorious book of how they're all seeing and feeling God. No, they feel distant from him. But when you look closely in this book and the storyline and all the ups and downs, you do see God. It's just that he's behind the scenes. We see his providence, his care and control. We see his sovereignty, his supreme rule over his people. And then more to the point, as we've looked at each chapter in this book, we've noted some things that the Jews have done in their lives, action points that help them navigate divine distance so that they might one day see God again. And that's been really the whole point of this book. Trust in his providence that he's still there and then here are some things you can do. And so up to this point, we have noted five things in our look so far into the book of Esther that you and I can do that Esther and Mordecai and the people back then did in order to bridge that distance we feel from God, to at least hang in there when he feels far away. We notice that you need to be humble and stay humble and submissive before God. We noted that you need to maintain your righteousness. Don't give uh, the moral high ground to someone else. Stay in that place. We noted that you need to make godly decisions when you're at the crossroads. Uh, Kevin walked us through this idea of waiting on God. 
giving him lots of God room or putting lots of God room in our lives. And then Rustin last week talked about trusting in God's faithfulness. Five things that you and I can do when God feels distant, things that help us navigate times and even allow us to see his light once again. And we're not done yet, not nearly. For there are three more powerful things that the book of Esther shares with us when it comes to responding to times in life when God is more behind the scenes. And the next one, the sixth thing, bounces off what Rustin shared last week, this idea of faithfulness. But watch this. Instead of focusing on God's faithfulness, which is what Rustin talked about last week, this next installment of Esther is going to turn the tables on you and me and reveal to us the power of our faithfulness when it comes to navigating divine distance. So when you talk about this idea of faithfulness, yes, there is God's faithfulness and we need to trust in that. That's chapters uh, six. But it also has to do with our faithfulness and how we respond to God even when he feels far away. That's chapters seven and eight. Now, to see this most clearly, I want you to think about all that has transpired in Esther's story up to this point. This will be a good and quick review so that we're all on the same page. As we've noted ad nauseum in this series, the Jews have been in exile. They've been taken captive by a stronger nation to the north and east, the Persians. And then Esther, this humble, sweet Jewish woman, has married the king, who would have thought, a guy by the name of Ahasuerus, or Xerxes, as known to the Persians. And here's what you need to know about him. He's a mixture of power-hungry and insecure. I know it's hard to picture a man who's power hungry and insecure, but just go with me on it. Ahasuerus is like consumed with his own power, but he's insecure like a three-year-old. And what that means is that he makes decisions out of the emotion of the moment, whether it be anger or pleasure. And though things go well for a brief while, eventually the waters get rough when Mordecai, who's Esther's cousin and father figure, refuses to bow down to the king's second in command, a guy by the name of Haman. And all you need to know about Haman is that he shares the king's temperament of anger and power and insecurity. And so instead of just getting mad at Mordecai and, and, and like giving him a fine or something like that for not bowing, no, he devises this plan of Holocaust level to exterminate all of the Jews in Persia, and there's over a million of them. And he even gets the king to sign off on it because the king doesn't know that his new wife is Jewish. She never shared that with him. And so the king says, well, if Haman wants this, I'll give it to him. And the king signs off on this plan to kill all the Jews in Persia. And obviously Esther and Mordecai are a bit concerned about this. And so Esther, and we're almost done with the review here, devises a plan. As we have noted, an ingenious plan leaving lots of room for God to work, she fasts and prays and invites the king and Haman to a dinner. And at this dinner, it's fascinating, the king says to her, because he really does love his new wife, he says to her, what is it that you want, Esther? Up to half the kingdom I will give you whatever you want. 
Now, as I showed you in the first week, the Persian kingdom is massive. In fact, half of the Persian kingdom would be about half of the southern United States. So he's basically saying, I'll give you that large of a landmass. And it's interesting. What does Esther ask from him at this first dinner? Do you remember what it was? She says, I'd like you to come to a second dinner tomorrow night. He's like, what? That's what you want? another dinner in 24 hours? And she says, yes. And and, and he has no idea why she's asking it. But we do, because Kevin helped us with this. And that is that Esther is leaving lots of God room through this staggered, stalling plan. She leaves lots of time and space for God to enter in and do what only he can do in the hearts and minds of those involved. And Kevin challenged us to learn to wait on God. And sure enough, during the intervening 20 to 24 hours between dinner number one and dinner number two, God orchestrates things in such a way that the king is now totally happy with Mordecai, and he's curiously endeared to his wife, primed and pumped to now do whatever needs to be done for Esther and his new friend Mordecai. And so think about it, folks. Now we're at the, at the contact point. At this point in the drama... As we enter into chapters seven and eight, this second dinner where Esther is gonna drop the bomb about Haman's plan to kill the Jews and ask the king to intervene and stop it, the only thing that could possibly thwart Esther's plan is if Esther and Mordecai somehow shrink back, chicken out, lose their nerve, and don't carry through with the final aspect of their plan that of exposing Haman and asking for the king's help, right? In other words, the only thing that could sabotage what God has already blessed and guided up to this point is if Esther and Mordecai lose the faith, fail to stay the course, and carry through with this plan that they had come up with. Please see, this is really important. It's either faithfulness or unfaithfulness that's going to determine the outcome of the story of Esther. It all hangs on that. It's hanging by a thread there, and faithfulness and unfaithfulness is what is at stake. And as we already know, Esther chooses faithfulness. As she carries through lock, stock, and barrel with her plan, Matthew, our narrator, told us about it earlier. Maybe now you understand the story that we told earlier. In verses 1 and 2 of chapter 7, uh, Esther serves wine and food at the second dinner. And then in verses 3 and 4, after the king is filled with food and kind of happy, she, she then uh, drops the bomb and asks her requests. And, and Ahasuerus basically says, you want me to save the life of you and your people? Well, of course I would. And the rest of the chapter is Ahasuerus wondering, who is it that would try to harm you and your people, Esther? Why would somebody want to do that? And then Esther drops the bomb that it's Haman who wants to do this. And as we're going to see in just a second here, uh, he has two words for Haman, hang you. (laughs) And Haman is hung on the gallows, ironically the same gallows that Haman had set up for Mordecai. And then in chapter 8, Esther continues her faithfulness, now don't miss this, by revealing her connection with Mordecai and her Jewish heritage, and she asked the king to intervene and save the Jews. 
Again, another risky move. And as we know, the king could not completely nullify his previous edict to exterminate all the Jews because in that crazy culture, you couldn't even undo what the king did. The king could not even undo what the king had said. But what he could do now is empower Esther and Mordecai to write a new edict complete with the king's signing authority, what they called the signet ring, his authority behind it, and they could now defend themselves. And as we're going to see next week, the king's men will even help defend them. But in all of this, don't miss what's going on, gang. It's faithfulness. Through and through, it's Esther and Mordecai staying the course with the plan that God had already paved the way for. It's Esther and Mordecai following through with what they said they were going to do and trusting God in the process. And if ever there was a more relevant theme for you and I today living in our faithless culture, this is one. You know, I've thrown that word faithfulness around probably at least a dozen times in the uh, last 15 minutes since we've been talking, and yet I haven't defined what it is yet. So let me give you a good working definition of faithfulness. This is not out of a dictionary. It's not even out of a Bible dictionary. This is just my understanding of faithfulness from God's perspective when you add up all of the biblical evidence. And this is what faithfulness according to God's word is. And that is that faithfulness is being true to one's words, beliefs, and promises. Let me repeat that, you don't wanna miss this. Faithfulness is being true to your words, your beliefs, and your promises. We all know this. It's being steadfast and loyal, firm in one's adherence to a promise that you have made, to a belief that you hold, or the words that you say. And what you simply need to see is that you and I see a living picture of this in how Esther and Mordecai follow up the obvious God move in their lives, the God room that he had entered into. When in chapters seven and eight, they faithfully follow through with the plan they've been developing all along. And if nothing else, what it teaches us, and this is so relevant today, that in God's economy, in his perspective, faithfulness is an incredibly high value. In fact, if you've ever wondered what it is he wants from you as a follower of his son Jesus, very high on that list is that you would be faithful. Very high on that list is that you would be full of faith and trusting in him and acting upon that trust on a regular basis. And he's willing to even reward you for that. And before we get to the rewards, let's just understand something. I hinted to it earlier. One of the reasons this discussion on faithfulness is so important is because you and I live in a 21st century American culture that I would argue at one time had a value on faithfulness. But as our morals have eroded in our culture, one of the casualties has been this understanding of faithfulness. In fact, we live in a culture today that I would submit to you actually applauds and condones unfaithfulness. Case in point, a few years ago, a greeting card company, this is a true story, was started by a former advertising executive from Maryland, and she called this greeting card company the Secret Lover Collection. 
having greeting cards initially in seven states and available online, uh, the founder of the company said, and this is a direct quote, the Secret Lover Collection is committed to providing a greeting card collection with empathy and understanding without judgment to lovers involved in a secret relationship. Don't miss this, gang. These are greeting cards for people who are in adultery. When initially asked how she planned to market these cards, the founder and the creator said this, I love this, she says, well, there won't be a big banner that says infidelity. No, the cards will be displayed under labels like love expressions and intimacy. And if you're wondering what these cards are like, this one sort of took the cake for me. Uh, on, that, on, on holiday seasons, they have a card that, that when you open it says, as we celebrate this season with our families, I will be thinking of you. Wow. Do you get what is happening here? We now have greeting cards, and they're still available uh, today. Don't go out and buy them, by the way. We have greeting cards that celebrate marital unfaithfulness. We have greeting cards that champion adultery. And don't get me wrong, should we have compassion and mercy and forgiveness on people who make that sinful mistake? Of course we should. But I love how one commentator years ago when this first came out on a major news network said it. It was a divorce and family lawyer. And this is great. He said, and I quote, it seems to me really crude to use a greeting card to celebrate what in the 16th century was an offense by which you would be publicly hanged in the town square. <laughs> that was more funny than, than I, I thought it was more funny. But I guess you got to be able to laugh at Christian history. But you know what? That's the point is that our culture today has no shame when it comes to things like that. And it's not just marriage. Here's the deal. You look around. People aren't shocked anymore by businesses that don't honor their word. It's pretty common in our minds. People aren't shocked by students that plagiarize or, most recently, by parents who cheat the system to get their kids in the college of their choice. We aren't shocked by family members who don't care for aging parents. We are not shocked by millions who lie on their tax forms. We aren't shocked by CEOs who misrepresent their publicly traded companies. And don't get me wrong, we might be sad and even frustrated when we hear these things, but let me ask you an honest question to yourself. Are you shocked by any of these things? And most of us aren't. Years ago, you would have been, but not with where American culture has come now. Why? Because faithfulness in most of our minds is something more reserved for Grandma and Grandma Walton than it is for two and a half men. That's where our culture has come to. Faithfulness is under attack, and it even influences many of us in the church to not put as high of a value on it. And yet, here's what you need to know about God, gang, and that is that faithfulness in his economy, when it comes to him and his people, is a very high value. He prizes it. <laughs> and unlike our culture, he's not going to send you a greeting card to celebrate your unfaithfulness. No, he does the opposite. In an incredibly positive fashion, what God does is respond to our faithful actions with something that makes all the difference. 
And it's our main and only point today. It's, it's the whole point of Esther 7 through 8. And this is it. And that is that it is through faithfulness that we once again experience God. Man, if you're dry here today spiritually, if you felt that distance between you and him, even for a long time, let me encourage you greatly with something. Esther teaches us that it is through, oh, go back, that it is through faithfulness, go back to that uh, main point slide, please, that it is through faithfulness that we experience God. It's clear in the scriptures here. Now, to see this very clearly in the story before us, I want you to look with me at how the God who is behind the scenes orchestrates things, this is very important, in response to Esther and Mordecai's faithful carrying through of their plan, and I want you to notice rather quickly, because we need to wrap this up here in a few minutes, I want you to notice five things contained in chapters seven and eight that God does in response to their faithfulness that will make all the difference in their experience of him. First notice that God provides justice. I warned you about this verse earlier. It says in Esther 7, verses 9 and 10, and this is right after Esther reveals, you know, Haman's plot against the Jews. It says, and the king said, hang Haman. So they hanged Haman on the gallows, which he had prepared for Mordecai. Whoa. And it doesn't even stop there. As Esther then pleads for the king to do something about Haman's plan to exterminate all the Jews, a plan that was already in place, complete with the king's seal and signature behind it. It couldn't be undone. Justice is once again provided. When the king allows for a new edict to be issued, that will overcome the first one. This is in Esther 8, verse 8. Simply notice, because we're going to move on right now, that justice is provided for the faithful Esther and Mordecai in response to them staying the course. What do you think God might do for you? It doesn't stop there. Look at another thing that the God who's behind the scenes provides, and that is honor. It says in Esther 8, verse 2, and the king took off his signet ring, which, we had taken, which he had taken away from Haman, and he gave it to Mordecai, and Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. Now, this is really important here, because basically what's happening here is that now that Haman is out of the picture, who's going to take his place as the second in command of all of Persia? <laughs> And, and the king decides to make Mordecai, this poor Jewish man, who's the cousin of, his, of the queen, to now be the second in command of all of Persia. Mordecai was honored with a position of authority and power. And we'll go on to say in verse 16 of the same chapter that the Jews will receive honor as well. Faithfulness brought honor. So you got justice, you got honor, and then moving along in chapter 8, notice a third result that God provided stemming from their faithfulness, and that is protection. This one's really important, protection. It says in verse 11 of Esther 8, in them the king granted the Jews who were in each and every city the right to assemble and to defend their lives. The king granted that to them. To destroy, to kill, and to annihilate the entire army of any people or province which might attack them, including children and women, and to plunder the spoil. Kind of reads like a Lord of the Rings book, doesn't it, right now? 
Now, for those of you who are discerning, and you're rightly discerning this, let's talk about it for 30 seconds. This seems rather harsh, right? Like, oh my gosh, I mean, they're going a little bit too far here. Like the, 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 the king basically says, I give you the authority, and we're going to see even next week that the king actually allows his army to help with this. So like the Jews got the Persian army behind them to attack anybody that tries to follow through with that initial edict. And if they attack you, you can attack them back and kill every kid and plunder all the spoils. You know what we're going to learn next week in our message on handling power is that even the, though the Jews had the right to do that, they will not touch, touch one child and they will not take any of the plunder. Why? Because God's people don't handle, handle power like that. But what God did provide for them is protection. What do you think he's willing to do for you in your faithfulness? So you got justice, you got honor, you got protection. And look at a fourth thing that God does in response to their faithfulness. And this one most people don't see coming, and that is joy and gladness. Look at verses 15 and six, through 17 of Esther 8. It says, Then Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal robes of blue and white, with a large crown of gold and a garment of fine linen and purple. Here it is. And the city of Susa shouted and rejoiced. For the Jews, there was light and gladness and joy and honor. And in each and every province and in each and every city, wherever the king's commandment and his decree arrived, there was gladness and joy for the Jews. A feast and a holiday. Thrice repeated in three verses, it tells us joy, gladness, joy, gladness, joy, gladness. Simply notice, all in response to their faithfulness, God gave them joy. I wonder what he would be willing to do for you. And then just so that we don't think it's all about us, look at a fifth and final thing faithfulness brought to Esther's situation. And this is something that God caused. And this is fascinating. It's evangelism. It says in, in verse chapter 8, verse 17, and many among the peoples of the land became Jews. Now watch this. For the dread of the Jews had fallen on them. Now let's spend a second on this because some of you don't like this and I get it. Some of you are going, this kind of sounds like a hellfire brimstone thing, right? What's the answer to that? Yeah, that's exactly what's going on here, right? I mean, these people were like scared to death and the dread of the Jews and of the Jews' God was coming upon them and they're like, where do I sign up? Now, the New Testament will come along and tell us that God's kindness, his grace, that the love of Jesus are the primary motivators in coming to God, amen? Romans 2, 4, it's his kindness that leads us to repentance. So we know that. But what a lot of mature Christians also miss, because maybe we grew up in a legalistic home where we don't like the hellfire brimstone thing, is that the Bible does affirm that a healthy fear of God is a good thing. And if you don't believe me, I'll just nail this shut for you right now. Think about your kids. Think about your kids. Any of you here a good parent? My guess is many of you are good parents or grandparents. And here's what I know about you as a good parent. You want your kids mostly to respond to you out of love for you and your care for them and all the grace and love stuff. That's how it should work. But when they're not listening to your love, are there times where you might get just a little bit tough with them? Maybe put the fear of God into them. 
and say, Johnny, Susie, if you do not do that, and then you meet out what the repercussion would be. How many good parents do that? A lot of good parents. And if your kid looked at you and said, well, you shouldn't motivate me through fear, you'd say, uh, well, actually, I should. <laughs> because though love is the primary motivator, fear is also something that God has wired us to respond to. And that's all that's going on here. And what's profound about this passage here is that evangelism didn't happen very often in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, the gospel is universal in scope. In the Old Testament, it's God mainly working through the Jews. And so to see people knocking on the doors of Israel saying, how do I sign up? It's a profound moment here, all as a result of faithfulness. So we're gonna accelerate into our conclusion right now, but simply note this, and this is just a sample. Esther and Mordecai are faithful, and God provides justice, honor, protection, joy and gladness, and evangelism, all as a result of them staying the course. Galatians 6, 9, years later, would say it this way. And let us not lose heart in doing good, for in due time, that's key, we shall reap if we do not grow weary. Let me ask you a question. Do you believe that verse for your life? Do you believe that this pattern of our faithfulness drawing us close to God is relevant or applicable today? Because all I can tell you, gang, is I'm going on 40 years of being a Christian coming up here in the next couple of years. And all I can tell you is there have been countless times, countless times, where I have seen real and tangible results come as a divine byproduct of me being faithful to God. There's times I don't feel like reading the word or praying. I want to shut down on God. But as I stay faithful in that, I experience real peace and spiritual growth. There's times that I don't want to confess my sin, where I just want to let that one slide and not really talk about it with God. But as I confess my sins ongoingly and consistently, the result is that I have feelings of forgiveness and being clean before God. <laughs> this one will get you, and I hope you can receive this. There are times that I don't feel like being with other believers. Fellowship is a drag, and I just don't want to be with other Christians right now, or even maybe for a season in my life. But as I stay faithful to my friends and stay in the ring with them, God rewards me with deeper relationships and deeper spiritual growth. When I stay faithful in the midst of temptation and I abandon myself to him, I experience strength and power to avoid sin. When I stay faithful in my marriage to Kim, which I have for 31 years, and I'm not just talking about fidelity, but I'm talking about the vow that I took to love, honor, and cherish above all else. God has rewarded me with growth and intimacy with my dear wife, and I tell her almost weekly that I love you more this week than I did last week. We're growing in that way. I could go on and on. When I'm faithful in my giving of resources to God, I could, I could tell you story after story how he has taken care of Kim and I financially, especially in those years when we had very, very little. You get the point. God honors faithfulness in us. And his power and his activity is unleashed when we are full of faith, staying the course. It's what he does in response to those who are faithful. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 58 would sum it up well. It says, therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, 
always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that you're in the Lord, your labor is not in vain. And it's true. Now, before I go to our closing story, and we're gonna have some fun with this, I, I promise you, um, I wanna make one caveat about everything that I've set up to this point. And it's an important caveat for those of us who might watch TV preachers or something like this. And the caveat is this, and that is that when it comes to your faithfulness and God's response, now watch this, it is not a slot machine. In other words, you don't just approach God with your nickel of faith and throw it into the slot machine, pull the bar, know that three bars come up, and gather all of your blessings. It does not work that way. Why? Because God does not respond to our demandingness when it comes to how and in what ways he will bless us in response to our faithfulness. Let me repeat that. God does not respond to our demandingness or even our desires when it comes to how and in what ways he will respond to our faithfulness when we are being faithful. It's up to him how he will do it. There are times when he will respond to your faithfulness by giving you peace and contentment, a sense of security that he is with you. We call it his presence. There are times that he will respond by giving you a persevering spirit, allowing you to tie that knot at the end of the rope and hang on for dear life. That's from God. And there are times where he will bless you materially and tangibly in response to your faithfulness. It's all included. But never mistake, it is God who determines the response. That was a really good spot for an amen, so let's take another run at it. It is God who determines the response. And more Christians need to understand that and stop listening at times to TV preachers because they make it sound, not all of them, but some of them do, like you just put in your corner, pull the thing, and God will give you whatever blessing you demand. That is not biblical. His faithfulness is much more on his end of that than ours. Now, I'm gonna wrap up right now by sharing you a story, and I'm gonna read you a poem. I was thinking about it this week because I just hate poetry. I don't think I've ever read a poem to you guys in my life. I'm just not an artist. I, I have an appreciation for poetry. I just don't get it. And so, you know, I, I, I took classes in college. I got a book on Robert Frost and all this, and I read it and go, okay. And so, and then I watch NCIS. So I am just not a poet. But I was introduced to a poem recently, and I know the guy that wrote it, that moved me deeply in my spirit, and I think it's gonna move you as well. It, it was written by a guy back in the 1980s named Robertson McQuilkin. Let me tell you Robertson's story, because it's powerful. Uh, Robertson McQuilkin, who died two years ago at the age of 88, was the longtime president of Columbia Bible College and Seminary in Columbia, South Carolina. Back in the day, in the early in the 70s and 80s, he was known throughout most of the evangelical world as a wonderful, godly, strong leader, head of Columbia Bible College and Seminary. Everybody knew Robertson's name and was very proud of that he would be the guy leading the charge at, at that seminary. In, in the uh, late 70s, early 80s, his wife Muriel, when they were both in their 50s, um, had, got Alzheimer's or got diagnosed with Alzheimer's. And, and it was gonna be fairly severe, as most of it is. For a while, Robertson tried to hang on to the presidency and then uh, care for Muriel. He had a, a, somebody, the seminary provided somebody at their home to care for her. But he tells a story that one day he came home from a long day at the office and as he was putting Muriel to bed, he noticed that her feet were all bloody. 
And he asked the caregiver what in the world happened. And she said, oh, Muriel got away from us for a few hours and she was wandering all over campus looking for you. At that moment, he said, that's it. He made the boldest move of anybody I've ever seen in, in, in something of this realm. He, he, he decided at that moment, and he said it was not a hard decision at all to resign the presidency of Columbia Bible College and Seminary and devote whatever years it would take to personally caring for Muriel. It was written up in Christianity Today and all these other places. He committed career suicide for his wife. He, he said it was not hard at all to do. He said it this way. He said, she gave me the first 30 years of our marriage so that I could have my career. The least I could do would be give her whatever years she has left that I could care for her. She'd go on to live 20 years with Alzheimer's. And he cared for her every step of the way. Incredibly faithful man. But that's not the poem. Somewhere in his 50s, he hit a dark spot like we all can and probably in light of this. And he wrote a poem that many people have read. It's a beautiful poem called, Lord, Let Me Get Home Before Dark. Now, I'm gonna read you a portion of the poem right now as we close here, but before I do, I wanna warn you that this poem seems like it's written by an old man. It's not. It was written by Robertson in his 50s when he felt very tired, rather old, and that, you know, as he's committed this rest of, life, this rest of his life to this, he did not know how many days he would have left. But the cry of the heart of this poem is that even in the darkness, that he would remain faithful and that God would get him home, meaning heaven, before dark. It's a beautiful poem. We're gonna try to stay with the cadence of this poem. So I'm gonna put it up here on the screen and see if this moves you like it did me. It's sundown, Lord. The shadows of my life stretch back into the dimness of the years long spent. I fear not death, for that grim foe betrays himself at last, thrusting me forever into life. Life with you, unsoiled and free. But I do fear. I fear the dark specter may come too soon, or do I mean too late? That I should end before I finish, or finish but not well. That I should stain your honor, shame your name, grieve your loving heart. Few, they tell me, finish well. Lord, let me get home before dark. The darkness of a spirit grown mean and small, fruit shriveled on the vine, bitter to the taste of my companions, burden to be borne by those brave few who love me still. No, Lord, let the fruit grow lush and sweet, a joy to all who taste, spirit sign of God at work, stronger, fuller, brighter at the end. Lord, let me get home before dark. The outer me decays. I do not fret or ask reprieve. The ebbing strength but weans me from Mother Earth and grows me up for heaven. I do not cling to shadows cast by immortality. I do not patch the scaffold lent to build the real eternal me. I do not clutch about me my cocoon vainly struggling to hold hostage a free spirit pressing to be born. But will I reach the gate in lingering pain, body distorted, grotesque? Or will it be a mind wandering untethered and among light fantasies or grim terrors? Of your grace, Father, I humbly ask, let me get home before dark. 
And my prayer for each and every one of you, for all of us, is that we might get home before dark. You might feel beat up. You might even feel distant from God. But if you are Jesus's, and if you believe in him, you are, you are filled with the Holy Spirit. His grip of grace is upon you. And as you trust him, as you remain faithful, he will get you home before dark. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this amazing story before us, both of Esther and the example set by uh, Robertson McQuilkin. And Father, I pray that as each of us give a lot of thought to our own lives and where we might be spiritually right now in our lives, that God, we might be moved more toward you, even at times in the dimness and even the darkness, that we would trust you, your providence, your sovereignty, your care, your love for us in our Savior, Jesus Christ. And by the power of your Holy Spirit, Lord, let us get home before dark. May we remain faithful and trusting, knowing, Lord, that the reward is well worth it. And I pray this in Jesus' name, and we all say together, amen.